This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Chad Roy, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans. We'll be discussing how long the SARS-CoV-2 virus can last suspended in the air. Hello, how are you doing, Sarah? I'm doing very well. So glad to have you here. Dr. Roy, remind us what SARS-CoV-2 is compared to COVID-19. Sure, Sarah. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, and that was the designation that was given to the virus, uh, its acronym, uh, once it was discovered. And COVID-19 is the disease that is associated with infection from the virus. So when we refer to COVID-19, we're referring to the disease state, uh, clinical signs, and and that sort of thing associated with with infection. And recently, um, I've had a couple people tell me they don't actually know what COVID-19 stands for. Can you explain that, please? So it's a coronavirus uh, disease, and 19 is the designation from 2019. So it's just an acronym that that refers to the the clinical syndrome associated with the viral infection. So uh, think of it as um, uh, similar to the nomenclature around AIDS. So AIDS is the disease associated with uh, individuals that are infected with HIV that uh, progress to a disease state uh, after being inf- infected with HIV. So you can be HIV positive, but not necessarily have AIDS. Um, and and the syndrome uh, with late stage infection is referred to as AIDS. Same thing here. We're just referring to to COVID as a disease state associated with infection from the virus. SARS-CoV-2, so so we can't be infected with a disease, (laughs) but we can can be infected with a virus. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you for that. When SARS-CoV-2 first arrived, scientists thought it would behave like regular colds or flu and only be carried in respiratory droplets. Now we have the specter of aerosols. What's the difference between aerosols and droplets? So that's a little bit of a loaded question, Sarah, but they're they're all aerosols, and so we need to keep that in mind. It's just size makes a determination between the respiratory droplets and referring to it as a respiratory droplet and classifying it as such, and aerosols, which are, I think, classified as a a smaller particle than a respiratory droplet. They're all small, uh, but aerosols are really small. And the the reason that uh, we we don't know a lot about that fraction that's smaller is um, where there's a, a, a lot less understanding about its behavior and characteristics in the environment uh, during transport. Uh, and person-to-person infection as it pertains to those smaller droplets or aerosols. Uh, 
uh, the respiratory droplets, which are uh, a bit larger, uh, we do know something about their trajectory in the air and that they can fall out of the air column quicker because of gravity uh, and, and other things uh, than those smaller droplets. So the, the movement of those, those smaller aerosols are much more opaque to us than the uh, respiratory droplets and what we consider like close contact. And we can kind of contextualize that with uh, diseases like influenza uh, that, that we know a lot, a lot more about uh, in, in that case. So uh, when we talk about an emerging virus like SARS-CoV-2, we didn't really have a good idea of, of, uh, of transmission as it relates to true airborne transmission, uh, you know, over longer distances than, say, you know, one or two meters. What were you looking for when you did your experiment? Did you have any particular ideas of how they would turn out? Well, so I've been in infectious disease aerobiology for a long time. And so uh, first uh, with the U.S. Army for almost a decade, uh, and then here at uh, Tulane University for um, going on 14 years now. And so we... Uh, really were interested to understand just the basis of whether or not this virus can survive in aerosols of a particular size uh, as kind of a, almost like a baseline uh, because we didn't know anything about it. We knew something about SARS-1, you know, the virus from the early 2000s in terms of its efficiency in aerosol. So, the ability of the virus to maintain replication competence, meaning that if it gets into a human, uh, it will or will not replicate. Because, you know, as we know, viruses are the zombies of the microbiological world. They're not alive or dead. They only need that competence to replicate. And the aerosol environment is such a stressful one for microorganisms that you have to assess it to see whether or not it, you know, it, it, it can, it, it, upon dehydration, it'll lose that ability to replicate. It's a very important measurement. Uh, and so we wanted to do the baseline. We wanted to do what happens uh, in, in that circumstance. Uh, we've done this with a number of other viruses and bacteria and other infectious agents over the years uh, to better understand that. So when we saw this emerge, uh, the very small community of infectious disease aerobiology folks were, you know, uh, keen on, on getting that done. And, and, and so there was a lot of collaboration and coordination with other laboratories um, at the National Institutes of Health, uh, the Army labs, and uh, places like University of Pittsburgh. So how did you go about the experiments? So in, initially what we did is we wanted to understand the uh, dynamic efficiencies of uh, aerosolized SARS-CoV-2 virus. And what that means is that we were generating these aerosols uh, synthetically uh, at a particular size, 
So we're using a, a, a laboratory nebulizer that we've used in the past. We know the characteristics of that. We were using a cultured virus, and uh, we generated an aerosol into a chamber, and that chamber uh, was run at a rate that was uh, uh, about about 15 liters per minute. So what that means is that we're just pushing air into and pulling it out of that chamber at a known rate. So that's the dynamic part. So the residence time of those aerosols were only about 30 seconds to a minute after they were aerosolized. And we knew their size, too. We measured that. We have, we have ways to measure that as well. And we also collected a sample in real time of that aerosol when it was being generated. So it sounds like a very complex thing, and it is, but it's, uh, it's something that is, uh, was harmonized with a, with a number of labs that I, I just mentioned on measuring that. That sample was then uh, 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 you know, pulled out of that chamber, and then it was, was assessed, it was tested or assayed, uh, for uh, replication competence uh, in a, a plaque assay or, or what we call TCID50 assay to get some idea of the kind of remaining rep replication competence in that sample from that aerosol concentration that we had generated. Now, we're doing this in a very safe manner, I should say. You know, there's tons of engineering controls uh, on, on, on doing this type of, of research in biocontainment, so a biosafety level three laboratory. Um, and, and, and so we take great care and when we do this, and, um, and we've done this procedure a number of times as well uh, to, you know, to, to ensure the safety of everyone involved. Um, and from that, we could derive estimates of its efficiency in, in aerosol. And importantly, what we did is we compared that with other beta coronaviruses that have emerged in the last 25 years, namely SARS-CoV-1, which is the original SARS uh, from the early 2000s, and MERS, the Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Virus as well. And, uh, and, and compared all of those and, and that's a part of the, the article that's being published, uh, to see the relative hardiness of this virus in that particular set of experimental conditions. That, that's an interesting point about the, the biosafety. Um, we, we read these articles about uh, testing um, this or that for, the, for COVID, and, and I don't think it really strikes us how, oh gosh, you know, how dangerous that potentially is. So glad to hear it's in a it's a yeah, it's a healthy respect through the years for for this. Especially at the size that we're generating these infectious aerosols. It's very small. It's about two microns in in diameter. And mm -hmm. uh that's a highly respirable aerosol. So if you were to encounter a two micron aerosol, uh you could inhale it and it could make its way down to your lungs. So mm. that in mind, uh, when we're doing these studies, um, and uh, and so that's why there's so much thought and effort put into the, the engineering behind keeping us safe when we do these types of experiments. Do do certain activities have a greater impact on spreading these aerosols? Um, you know, like singing or shouting or 
talking loudly? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so that you know, there's a big jump, and it's important that everybody remember the jump from a you know an absolutely controlled environment that we're dealing with in the laboratory and those results, which we have to do to observe the change, to observe the phenomena. If we try to do that in, say, an outdoor environment, it's very, very difficult to observe those differences. So when we jump to kind of real life, what you're talking about, the natural generator idea, we need to, you know, temper our conclusions with the context in which those studies were done, a very controlled environment uh, in the laboratory where we're synthetically generating these aerosols, and the changes that we observed, which we do all the time, um, to someone that may be infectious, that are is singing or, or shouting or, or even breathing. We know that, that and, and this is not just my lab, but many labs, have shown that uh, the human beings, when we we exhale, we exhale uh, particles, and um, there's some of us that exhale more particles than others. Uh, and when we do certain activities, like shouting or singing, for instance, there's a potential there for even more particles to be generated. And the important thing to remember. In, in that, in the assessment of those, which has been done as well uh, by others, uh, is that the very heterogeneous distribution of particles that are generated. They're not like the monodisper- likely monodisperse aerosols that we're working with in the laboratory to observe these changes. Um, and so the natural generator is a lot in many ways, much more complex in terms of how they generate those particles and the size distribution of all those particles. And the reason that that's important, not to make it a really long-winded answer, but is that when we talk about bioaerosols, so aerosols that are carrying a biologic load, remember, these particles that we're talking about, these aerosols that we're talking about are not comprised completely of virus. And in many cases, there's no virus in those aerosols. Uh, There's a probability of a virus being in the biologic load of those aerosols. And now we're getting really small when we're talking, but the viral particles are only about 120 nanometers in size. So if you can imagine a 2-micron aerosol um, that's liquid, but it's an aerosol particle, and uh, those viral particles kind of hitching a ride inside that one aerosol. And there may be one, or there may be two, or there may be three of those viral particles in that particular aerosol. Now, because we're dealing with aerosols, we deal with cubic volume, right? So a 10 micron aerosol can contain potentially a thousand times the biologic load as a one micron aerosol because it's cubic. And so the 10 micron aerosols can harbor a lot more potentially viruses than the one micron aerosol. And so when we talk about heterogeneous distribution of natural generators, 
that's the potential that we're talking about. So it gets really complex there compared to the relatively simple way that we approached it in the laboratory with a kind of a single-sized aerosol just to observe that change on that particular circumstance. And and so that that's where you, you know, you have to allow the individuals that have a collective of the data, all the data that's being generated, to understand the public health implications and, and, and think about it in, a, in such a way that they can consider all the data out there um, uh, as it pertains to transmissibility in aerosols. Okay, so along those same lines, uh, what do we know about the impact of conditions? Um, I was that we were able to look at that, say humidity versus dry air, heat versus cold, windiness, and so on. Yeah. So, well, there was two things. So, to, to answer your question, we didn't do that here at at, at the Tulane site, but some research has just come out in the last month month and a half, maybe, uh, from uh, Homeland Security's laboratories uh, located at, at, at Fort Detrick, the INVAC facility, that published two just absolutely wonderful uh, articles that did just that. And they compared humidity versus dry air. They compared heat versus cold. And importantly, they compared the effect of sunlight. And they use the same sized aerosols, viral aerosols that I was using here, and which was really nice because we can kind of kind of compare apples to apples there. And um, uh, sunlight has a a dramatic effect on replication confidence in in aerosol and, and, and drops the virus kind of essentially half life to less than a minute uh, when once it's in aerosol, which is Kind of comforting to think about, yeah. Uh, in in all the all the data, and uh, because the data that I generated is you know, or you know, the collaboration of folks that that I worked with, a little sobering. And and that's the second part, which is the suspensions, which I I understand we're going to talk about a little bit here, and looking at longer term survival of this this virus. Okay, so so sunlight has an impact, but um, not say humidity or or rain. Yeah, <laughs> or wind. <laughs> rain, but uh, I don't think they they simulated rain. But these these articles uh, were published in uh, the Journal of Infectious Diseases, and it's clear that there is an impact on the replication competence of the virus. Uh, but that's kind of buried in those those graphs that are included in that uh, that article. I, I or those two articles. I, I do remember that sunlight has a dramatic impact on that. Mm-hmm. All right. So say um, somewhere sunny is better off outside than say a rainy or dark or not. <laughs> I guess. I'm, I'm a fan of rain, so I don't know. Um, uh, okay, so how does this uh, SARS um, COV2 aerosol suspension compare to SARS and MERS, which are also coronaviruses, as you mentioned earlier? 
Yeah, so that that's this the interesting. I mean, it's all interesting, but that's the interesting part of the story uh, with SARS-CoV-2. So, in a second set of experimentation, we uh, artificially suspended those same size particles uh, in a rotating drum. So, a rotating drum is a, a small device. Well, it's small here. <laughs> There's other labs that have much, much bigger ones, and I. This one's about 11 liters in, in capacity. Uh, that allows us to overcome the terminal settling velocity of those particles as we, when we generated them, they were about two microns. So think about a uh, kind of a washing machine setup uh, to where you have a, a, a horizontal agitator. Um, much smaller in, in our hands, and um, in, and rather than the par particle naturally settling based on its terminal settling velocity, which is very slow, by the way, for a two micron aerosol, it'll take hours and hours and hours and hours for it to settle out, but it eventually will settle out. Um, with a rotating drum, we can uh, overcome that, and if you can imagine that particle kind of corkscrewing and it can corkscrew for an indefinite period of time. So not necessarily contacting the walls, but not necessarily settling at the bottom either. And so we've run our rotating drum in prior experimentation for hundreds of hours and, and, and has been successful in, in, in uh, suspending these particles for a long period of time. So that's just what we did. In, in those experiments, and we we had timed uh, uh, points where we evacuated the entire chamber and sampled the entire chamber and uh, assayed those viral aerosols to understand the replication competence that is residual in those aerosols. And so if you do that enough times, at enough time points, you can draw a line. And you can draw a line to show the uh, degradation of those particles and the loss of replication competence uh, in that. And the reason that I keep referring to it as replication competence is that we also have a way of measuring by PCR. Most people know what PCR is. That is measuring the genome copies, so the, the, the viral RNA that's in that chamber. And that's kind of our standard to show that our concentrations never change, no matter how long we suspend it. It's pretty much flat. Uh, and that's a, a good kind of validation that we have the same or similar concentrations in that chamber. Uh, but when we do the replication competent dependent assay, which is a plaque assay or TCID50 assay, um, we see a reduction of of replication competence or kind of the infective residual that's left there. Now, what we were expecting is that in 8 to 12 hours that we would see a significant drop-off of that, uh, that, that replication competence, and we didn't see that. We did our experiments up to 16 hours uh, of suspension, and it was a flat line as well. So there was some residual infectivity after being suspended for 
for nearly 16 hours uh, in, that, in that chamber. And so that was that was a uh, you know remarkable finding on our part. And um, and and you know the, and there's some limitations with that. So we only because we were you know everything was urgent <laughs> at the beginning of all. Yes. We did that experiment once, and one can imagine how long that takes if we're doing that and then having to redo it and redo it. So we 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 published this with you know the limitations stated clearly that hey look this was a single iteration you know future experimentation will include multiple iterations uh, and and that sort of thing. So um, but it, it was still a, a, a a remarkable finding, and it can be added to the collective data of, of uh, that's out there. Now, and I should mention also, we did this in the absence of sunlight, so it was in a completely black, you know, pitch black. It's pitch black inside of the the um, the chamber, so there was no uh, integration of, of that um, factor. So the bottom line is. Um... <laughs> I mean, real life is not usually in a total black room like that, but or space. But um, but potentially, this last aerosols in the air, somebody coughing, sneezing, whatever they're doing, can hang around for quite some time, much longer than originally thought. Than well, I think, yeah, right? I mean, it, and because we, we didn't have an idea of that, and so you know, whenever we're assessing this, because this is brand new. We wanted yeah. to make sure that we had the full constellation of effect, right? We wouldn't want to just start, you know. Uh, I, I would, you know, it's it's always a, I always think of it this way, you know. If you see, if you're in a port and you see a big cruise ship pass by, and you get to look into one porthole of that cruise ship, and you see people in that 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 one porthole, and they're, you know, eating dinner. Does that define that cruise ship? Well, obviously mm-hmm. not. You'd want to know more about what's going on in that cruise ship uh, because there's multiple portholes. You know, when we approached this, we wanted to get a baseline. Okay, absence of sunlight. You know, mm-hmm. let's see how long it does last, and then from there we can add, start adding our factors in, like sunlight, like the, the mm-hmm. folks at at Impact did, that showed wow, it's got. A, such a dramatic effect, at least on that particle size, on this this virus. So that's um, you know that's a way that that we all you know observe change and 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 watch a phenomena in front of us. Uh, so why why is this disease so very contagious? I mean, SARS wasn't this contagious. MERS is you know. Contagious, but not nearly this contagious. Why is this so contagious? The biggest distinction that I I can see between the two is, and I think others would would agree, is that both SARS and just to contextualize it, SARS and SARS two were both airborne transmissible. We we know that now. You know, we I don't think we need the WHO to come out and, and 
proclaim it. We, we know it. There's a, a overwhelming amount of evidence. The right. difference between the two is that the pathogenicity of SARS-CoV-2 is much lower than the SARS-1, meaning SARS-1 got into human being and, and you know, there was a, a, a greater percentage of, uh, of individuals that, that succumbed to disease that was not necessarily reliant on the presence of a comorbidity um, that, that was on board with that, that person. SARS-CoV-2 is a asymptomatic disease in young adults for the most part. I mean, we're, if we're talking generally here, for young adults and, and children, uh, whereas there's more, uh, you know, more consequence with folks with with comorbidities or or, or elderly or you know that that sort of thing. Um, so we have we have. More morbidity and mortality, uh, you know, in a certain segment of the population. But with that that younger cohort, there is more efficient transmission. So we see this just infecting enough, just getting enough people sick to have efficient transmission, especially with an airborne acute viral disease such as. SARS-CoV-2 and, and COVID compared to SARS-1, which kind of just, you know, almost burned out, right? It, right? it killed so many people that it wasn't efficient transmission. So, you know, some people have heard of like the R-naught and, and its efficient right. transmission. The SARS-CoV-2 continues to creep up and creep up and creep up because of that fact. So, that efficiency of transmission, I think, is uh, and the lack of mortality um, in a, a large percentage of those infected uh, is what is is you know, prolonging this disease. Okay, so sort of reiterating here, basically. Um, SARS just killed a whole bunch of people and died out because everybody that got it kind of died. Or um, And this just keeps going on and on and on because there's all these people walking around with it that don't even know they have it, and then they're giving it to people that when they do get it, it it's much more serious. Right. So uh, it's got to be the perpetuation of, of of transmission that we're dealing with. Now, the the, the small aerosol studies that we did to try to understand the basic, basic stuff of that, that, that generation and transport part of the equation, right? So we have three parts of that. We have a generation, we have transport, and we have deposition or into a human host. Showed us, at least on the, for a baseline, wow, you know, this is an efficient, you know, transmitter of disease in this form. And um, and in fact, when we compare SARS and and MERS with SARS-CoV-2, it's a little bit, at least in those dynamic efficiencies, a little bit hardier. Not much, but a little bit hardier. And, and that's what we show in the first part of that article, and that it has the potential to, at least, survive in aerosols as well. And these are aerosols that will travel for a long, long, long period of time and and and, and distance. Um, 
you know, of course, with the limitation that it's, that wasn't done in the pitch black. So, you know, that gives us the evidence that, the, the you know, public health leaders uh, can say, oh, okay, this is what we need to do in terms of... These findings have huge public health implications. Tell us how they should influence public health information and guidance. So the the way that I I look at it, Sarah, is, you know, this is one piece of the puzzle in the context of the airborne transmission that is, we hope, extremely helpful to public health leadership to make those decisions on what is best practices to keep everyone not infected and <laughs> and and safe. Um, and also with a dose of kind of reality and reasonableness to the equation. And, you know, it's always better to have a constellation of data to make decisions rather than the absence of data. Uh, because in, in the latter, there's a dose of, you know, people that can be unreasonable about expectations of how human beings interact, you know, and how we protect ourselves. And nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to protect, you know, um, you know, themselves and, and, and each other uh, and their families. And when there's an absence of data, it's very difficult to not just default on worst-case scenario. And um, with this emerging disease, a I think we've we've been under, kind of under the gun, so to speak, on on protecting ourselves. A, a perfect example of that is our our kids going back to school. You know, well, I have kids, and 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 we went through that calculus, and we listened very very closely to, you know, uh, our public health uh, leadership on. Um, on what to do in that situation, because ultimately it is our decision, right? And um, I'm, I'm heartened that we do have the data that we have in front of us, even though this is disease has only been around for this virus has only been really around, and we've studied it for the last six months. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's so quick to try to make these decisions, but um, I believe that people are being very thoughtful and. Um, and if they consider the context of this disease. And uh, so yeah, we were really excited when, when we had these results. And we, even though the data, you're right, is very sobering and, you know, it's not necessarily uh, fun. It's just data is data. And, you know, the, it's, it's, we're happy that we, we made a contribution in that way so public health leadership can you know, do their job and, and figure out what we need to do. So you said you were an aerobiologist. Frankly, I have to say I've never heard that term before and sounds really interesting. So tell us about your job and what you find most interesting about it. No, it's, uh, you're, you're 100% right, Sarah, that, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a kind of a little corner of science that I got involved in a real long time ago, actually in my graduate work, and and um, and I've been plugging away ever since. Um, and it's very interesting 
always learning new things. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I first trained in, in it uh, at, of all places, University of Iowa, which is a, a, a great, great place, and and uh, my alma mater, and uh, for my, my my PhD work, and uh, introduced to bioaerosols and aerobiology and the study of kind of this ecology of infectious disease in the air, and I was working then with agricultural bioaerosols, which are polymicrobial and uh, very complex, uh, and host response to inhalation of those. Um, and really my formative training in infectious disease aerobiology was kind of uh, uh, bootstrapped <laughs> at, uh, at the U.S. Army and, and U.S. Amherst, which... Uh, of just a absolutely wonderful training ground um, for that, and um, and hone my skills there uh, with a handful of other aerobiology uh, folks uh, that are there. So we're kind of a small group, uh, and then uh, then here at Tulane, where where I've, I've been at it for the last uh, nearly 14 years, and I can say with some uh, confidence, there's no other. Aerobiologists at Tulane, <laughs> so even, uh-huh. even though it's a great school, you know, it's uh, maybe maybe one or two aerosol science folks, but uh, that are into it as much as I am. So I've found it's just been a just a, a fantastic and constantly learning, constantly learning um, um, place to to be in in science and and. You know, I, I do a a lot of, of of work with with animals as well, and looking at host response to aerosol models of, of of disease, and the kind of the pathophysiology of aerosol infection, and so uh-huh. that's that's a big big part of what I do as well. Yeah, and uh, so I'm that's why I'm in the school of medicine, and uh, and and you know I've had great experiences along the way with. You know, uh, getting to spend time at CDC, for instance, and, and working there for a short period of time on collaborative projects, and all of this in in biocontainment. So I've done a significant amount of work in BSL three, but also BSL four, uh, mm. biosafety level four with, with with different agents as well. So it's been a a uh, an, an incredible. Uh, you know, uh, constellation of different experiences uh, that uh, that are fascinating. So, okay, now you've mentioned um, animals, so I have to ask. Um, maybe this isn't part of anything you've looked at or studied, but uh, there's been a couple of reports of COVID in cats and dogs, and I have two little dogs, and I'm afraid to take them for a walk. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> tiny dogs. <laughs> what do you think? Uh. What I think is you should go take those dogs for a walk <laughs> without fear and remember that any time we are outside, and I don't want to, you know, uh, give uh, public health edicts here, but when you are outside, you are surrounded by millions and millions of cubic meters of air. And the dilution effect that one experiences when they are in the outdoor environment, even in a completely still outdoor environment, is so great as to minimize your risk so low and your dog's risk of so low that 
we need to start thinking about this virus and viral infection as not uh, on the one-hit theory, right? So one infectious particle gets into your dog or gets into you, and it causes disease. Infectious disease does not work that way. You know, it, 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 it's, it's just, it, it doesn't work that way. And, and so uh, please, please, please go take your dogs for a walk. Okay, <laughs> well, thank you. Than that. <laughs> it's actually very comforting. Yes, now if I could just overcome the heat. Um, no, I, seriously, that is very comforting. Thank you. Okay, and a final question here. What do you do for fun and relaxation? Uh, Tulane is in Louisiana, which has been sort of a COVID-19 hotspot at one time. Uh, how are things going for you there? Yeah, so, you know, Tulane's great. It's, it's, uh, I'm so happy. I'm also an alum of Tulane, so kind of coming back, back home, as it were, has been such a big part of my life for so long. Um, the last six months have been, for many of us, a absolute blur. I, like, I try to think back on April or March and what I was actually doing, and I can't... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I, I tell my wife many times I, I I can't even remember what I was doing in March and April just because it's such a blur of uh-huh. the uh, you know that we we usually have our research activity here is normally at a fairly high tempo but this has been um, this has been overwhelming and and the the, the people that work in the laboratory you know I've kind of moved out of the laboratory. In, in my position now, but the, the the people that are in my lab, for instance, they've worked every weekend for the last several weekends, 14-hour days, and oh every day during the week just working on, 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 on animal modeling, on these questions, on protection studies, and everything else that we're engaged with. And um, I'm, you know... I'm almost embarrassed when I sneak out of here at 6:30 at night, and they're still here working. And so, mm. I mean, the the frontline work that these individuals are doing, you know, and these are not doctors and nurses; these are the laboratory personnel, uh, veterinarians that are just, you know, and, and others that are just so incredibly dedicated that, uh, oh gosh, brings tears to my eyes thinking about how. Uh, how hard people are working right now to find answers and and that kind of thing. So it's been a, I guess, weird time <laughs> to be to be in uh, uh, you know where we are right now. Um, but um, normally we have a pretty good time down here. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Roy. Well, thank you, Sarah. It was it was nice talking to you as well. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the September 2020 article, Persistence of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 in Aerosol Suspensions, online at cdc.gov slash EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.